Welcome to episode 63 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. You may not be able to see what we look like at the moment, but rest assured we are fully adorned with costumes because this is our special Halloween episode of the podcast. And in honor of the season of The Witch, we will be reviewing our second Zomcom of the year, Zombieland Double Tap. Now, Scott, of course, I know you're wearing a costume, but just for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you describe what you're going as for Halloween this year? Absolutely. So I have been to a couple of Halloween parties already, uh, one of which I did attend as a corgi. I have a corgi onesie that is very appropriate for Halloween. And I, I guess there's no reason why our listeners to our podcast wouldn't know that I love corgis. Mm-hmm. I do love corgis. So huge fan of that. That one went well. But I have another costume for my big Halloween party that I'm going to this Friday. And also Thursday as well. I think I'll wear the same costume probably because they're completely different friend groups. But it is a unicorn. I'm going as a unicorn. Wow. There you go. A rainbow unicorn, no less. Very nice. I uh, will be going as – I have already gone as Bojack Bojack Horseman. um, (laughs) And I will be going again as Bojack Horseman this Thursday um, in honor of the sixth and final season, which just debuted on Netflix. So check it out. Um, Shameless uh, plug there for – uh, final season of BoJack Horseman. Uh, Sixth season, part one, right? Isn't there like a second part coming out? Yeah. In January? Uh, in January or February, I believe they're going to release the last part, which honestly I'm good with because drag it out as long as possible. I don't want the show to end. It's definitely one of the greatest shows of the last few years. Um, and so the longer they, they can drag it out um, is for the better. Also because I watch these shows so slowly that um, I risk having stuff spoiled for me. Uh, because I, it takes me so long to to get through this stuff. So it's yeah. nice to know that I only have eight episodes to get through, and I've actually already watched two um, before. I, you know, so, bef- and, and I don't have to binge a whole season of uh, sixteen or whatever. It's not unbelievable though, so it's okay. It's not. That's true, and I need to finish watching that as well, and, and along with eight other things. So it never Wait, gets. How, how far are you in Unbelievable right now? The load never gets lighter. I think I've watched four episodes of Unbelievable. Yeah, Merritt Weaver, amazing. And I've also watched one episode of Watchmen and three episodes of Looking for Alaska. So you can tell that uh, the the philosophy that I have when it comes to watching shows: just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I am. I'm three episodes or four episodes deep on Sharp Objects right now. I haven't started watching Watchmen, but it is like the next thing to watch on my watch list yeah. right now, especially since it's relevant. Since there are two episodes into the season right now, and what else? Oh, I started. You'll love this, Scott. I started Marvelous Miss Maisel. Um, yeah, one episode in there. Oh so. my gosh, the the actual best show that is on right now. But uh, I think enough of us flexing about how many TV shows we're watching and not finishing at the moment. <laughs> I was going to say um, it's not even a flex because we're not even actually watching them. <laughs> yeah, but just it it is a flex because it's like just look at how much content we yeah. can absorb. Just look at all of the content. Yeah, um, we'll check back next week, and you'll see we've made zero progress in all of these shows. <laughs> Occasionally, too, we also talk about movies and watch a few movies. Um, and one of those movies happens to be *Zombieland: Double Tap*. So why don't we uh, we get to the review? Perfect segue. I don't know how you manage that one. Thank you, thank you. I'm a professional after 64 episodes. So, um, all right, Scott. *Zombieland: Double Tap* is the follow-up, of course, to 2009 *Zombieland*. And as the movie kicks off, things aren't looking quite as bleak for our quartet of heroes as they were the last time around. Columbus and Wichita are in a happy relationship, and Tallahassee is getting a second chance to be a father figure through his relationship with Little Rock. Oh, and did I mention they're living in the White House? Unfortunately, however, things start to go south in both of these relationships, and eventually Wichita and Little Rock leave the boys behind. But when Little Rock runs out with her hippie boyfriend on a sojourn to Graceland, Wichita is forced to reunite with Columbus, Tallahassee, and the newest addition to the group, Madison, an almost impossibly ditzy valley girl played by Zoe Deutsch. 
Scott, director Ruben Fleischer is back for this sequel, as is the original quartet of Woody Harrelson, Emma Stone, Jesse Eisenberg, and Abigail Breslin. But is Zombieland Double Tap a better sugar rush than a truck full of hostess cakes, or should someone have subjected this movie to a zombie kill of the week? You know, that's a great question, Scott, and I appreciate all the deep references, and I'm glad you gave me the background for the original Zombieland movie, because I haven't seen the original Zombieland movie, and I thought that I might get around, and usually I do try when it's only one or two movies for the podcast, I do try to to watch the the you know the first movies in a, the first couple of movies in a series didn't work out this time it's just been kind of crazy in both of our both of our real lives so to speak uh, the last the last couple of weeks or so and so I did not get around to watching the original Zombieland and this will probably create an interesting discussion for us today but overall it was one of those things where I wasn't immediately vibing with this, with this movie but over time over the course of it. I think I ultimately did like it. I think that yeah, this was uh, you talk about the second Zomcom that we've uh, we've we've seen this year, and I know that I think that you're going to disagree with me on this, but maybe not. I think this is better than the Dead Don't Die, uh, although they are going for very different things. The yeah. messages of the movie are completely different, as in at least the Dead Don't Die tried to have a message. I don't know if this movie really tries to have too much of a message, and I think that it honestly it probably works for the best for this film. It runs 93 minutes. It's super short. It's beautiful. None- None of its bits wear out their welcome. I, I I thought that based on the trailers, certain aspects or components of the movie were going to be drawn out for longer. We can talk about some of those. But most things only stick around for a scene or two, and then they move on to the next bit. And I think that works extremely well. It feels really well-paced in that sense. And when it wrapped up in 90 minutes, Scott, I was very happy that it wasn't longer than that because I think it probably was getting close to wearing out its wearing out its welcome. Uh, but it didn't, but it didn't. And overall I, I really liked it. I, I liked the performances from, you know, the, the lead, the lead actors, so to speak, of course, actresses in there as well. You have Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, Abigail Breslin, Emma Stone, uh, and then some, some new people as well. You have Rosaria Dawson and, and a few other characters who get a fair share of screen time. Zoe Deutsch is one, uh, that is uh, wow. She just plays such a variety of characters wow, on screen yeah, recently. Um, but she, I thought she was funny. Oh, uh, she could have gotten more annoying for sure if she had more screen time than she did. But it was funny and it worked for me. And and I think that by the end of this movie, I was charmed enough to have enjoyed it. But I don't know if I would, you know, run out the door to see a third Zombieland movie because. You know, I think that this movie was fun for what it was, but I'm not going to remember this movie in a few weeks, probably. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think it actually it it, it wants you want. No. It, I don't think it intends to be something that sticks with it's you, a so. to, to your um, point. It is a sugar rush. I think it it, it is a sugar yeah. rush and you enjoy it and, and the sugar rush goes away. Absolutely. And yeah, Scott, I'm a huge fan of the first Zombieland movie. I enjoyed it a lot. But even as much as a fan of it as I was, I wasn't like, oh, when is the sequel coming out? I'm ready for the sequel. Um, they really need to, to keep this going. Uh, but of course, you know, I was pleased when I saw that after a decade, um, they're, they're finally coming out with a sequel, even if it, it is a little odd, just the concept of the movie, the fact that 10 years later, they're making this sequel to a zombie comedy with all of these like Academy Award nominated and winning actors who could probably, you know, be out doing a lot bigger and better things and getting themselves back in the awards contention and uh, awards season and stuff. But instead, they've uh, decided to, uh, you know, travel back to this world of Zombieland that they first explored 10 years ago. And, I, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate that this is clearly some sort of kind of a labor of love for them a little bit, or at least they enjoy uh, making these movies and making these movies together enough to where um, they're willing to go along for a second one, even even 10 years later. And I think that this movie maybe is quite not quite as fun as the first movie, but it's still a lot of fun to your point, Scott. I don't know that I can really compare it to The Dead Don't Die because they are going for such different, uh, they are aiming for such different targets. Um, but I certainly I th- would recommend these movies, to, like those two movies, to different people. I mean, I personally didn't yeah. like it. I don't know. You can go listen to that episode and hear my thoughts on it yourself. But there's certainly an audience, which I would say, hey, you should check this out because you'd enjoy it versus Zombieland 2, which is. Yeah. And Scott, you talk about the different bits in the movie and a lot of them succeeding throughout. And I think that is kind of really how you sum up the movie in, in its bits, because I'm not sure that there's like a hugely cohesive narrative here. Um, it's really kind of a road movie. You know, they're tracking, they're trying to track down little rock. Um, a lot of the first movie was they're trying to get to the theme park. So, um, 
they're they're both kind of road movies and this movie doesn't really deviate from anything that made the first movie as much fun as it was um and in fact there are there are a lot of fan service moments and callbacks to the original movie that i think if you're a fan of the original movie um you're definitely going to get a kick out of including a post-credit scene that is an absolute hoot so um yeah i scott i like i don't i couldn't have asked for anything more from this movie um for being a perhaps somewhat unnecessary sequel. We'll talk about maybe whether this movie even needed to be made or not. Um, I think I had a lot of fun. As you pointed out, it's it, it's over in 93 minutes. I got plenty of good laughs. And I think that the cast absolutely is is the probably the, the shining star here, as it was in the first movie. Um, I think everyone is just absolutely purpose perfectly cast in their particular roles. And as you pointed out, the new players, I think, add some color as well. Zoe Deutsch, Rosario Dawson, Luke Wilson, and Thomas Middleditch pop up for a, some pretty hilarious cameo. Um, and I, I hope Thomas Middleditch can eventually break out of his yeah. Silicon Valley, um, the noose that's around his neck that is the, his role in Silicon Valley, because I could not see anything except that role in this film. Oh, anyway, really? I was dying the entire time <laughs> yeah. he was on the screen. It was hilarious. I think there, you know, maybe it goes a little bit under the radar, but there's some action that is kind of cool in this movie as well. Uh, in particular, I think there's one scene that's really well shot that we'll talk about. Um, we have to be Scott, on the same page on this. There's only there's only one scene that we could possibly you could possibly yeah, be referring I, to in my mind. I think so. I think so. But yeah, this this movie this is the kind of movie where if you go into this movie, you probably know exactly what you're going to get, and this movie gives you that. So I can't imagine that. Like I don't know what the audience score is or the cinema score but i imagine it's got to be pretty high because uh I, I think i can't imagine anyone not being satisfied with the uh brief but fun romp, romp that zombie land double tap is 89 percent audience score all right scott uh with that why don't we get into talking about some of those perform there you go yeah uh get into talking about some of those performances and the excellent cast in this movie. And we'll start with those uh, old cast members, those returning from the first movie, of course. We've already mentioned them. Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone, Abigail Breslin, um, all of whom have been Oscar nominated, one of whom is an Oscar winner. Um, Scott, uh, did they all um, carry the day for you or were, was anyone uh, a standout among these four? Yeah, I I, I'm really interested to when this comes, this goes back to you, whether any of them stand out to you having seen the original Zombieland, but I think they're all pretty much on equal footing. I mean, Abigail Breslin takes a little bit of a backseat in the film. I think she has a little bit less time on screen. Not that she doesn't make the most of it, but she has just a little bit less time on screen. So she's a little bit less impactful. I thought the dynamic between Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson, I mean, they do enough movies together. They should have a good dynamic at this point. They've done so many together they've done both of the catch the is it i can't it's not catch me if you can it's, now you um, see me yeah now you see me that's what it is now you see me movies they did the zombie the first zombie land the zombie land they do a bunch of movies together and they clearly have a really good chemistry working together because i think that that dynamic is the bit that of course goes on the longest because it's there the whole movie and it works really well i think that their dynamic clearly it clearly works on screen for me and you know woody harrelson i think gets to be the most woody harrelson that he can be in this movie and Absolutely. i think that's great i mean he clearly in his other performances and other roles you can go watch him and see that he has huge range and i think he just gets to like you know kick back his cowboy boots here onto the white house the, the presidential desk and just have a good time when he's making this movie and you can see it, and i think that's to your point exactly it's this is kind of a labor of of love for these actresses yes this movie doesn't take months and months and months to shoot. I think I was actually just looking at it as you were talking about, it, it was a little bit less than two months for the whole um, fil the filming of this movie. But still, like they're there because they want to make this movie. And I think you can see that in all the performances. I haven't mentioned Emma Stone yet because I think if I had to point someone out, I just think it's having not seen the first Zombieland movie, I find Emma Stone's performance in this movie kind of the most fun for me just because it's just like, well, you know, this is Emma Stone. Like she's been in some of my favorite movies that are very much not like this movie. Uh, you know, between La La Land and Birdman for me. And then, of course, there's obviously a ton of other movies that she's been in um, since the first Zombieland movie. And they're all great. And she's great in this in this film. And, you know, I think that her particular brand of dry, reserved uh, acting on screen, which she doesn't always do in all of her performances, uh, unlike her La La Land co-star. But she, uh, she I think she crushes it. I think she I think that particular performance in this film and and having seeing that kind of cold exterior that is kind of hardened by this post-apocalyptic zombie society that makes you kind of be reserved in your judgments and always kind of cautious of you know what you're doing what's around you and being reserved in that way 
I think seeing her fight through that um, in kind of in kind of a very on the nose way, right? It's not a subtle movie, but obviously at the beginning with the relationship she has with Columbus, how that evolves very quickly from the beginning of the movie, and then where that ends up at the end. I think that there is, in terms of that character, there is even more of an arc than you see with any other character. And so in that sense, I think she had the most to do. I think she did well, and because of that reason, she stuck out the most. Yeah, no, I don't know that there's a standout for me and the four of them. Like you said, I think that they all play off each other so well, and they all have such great chemistry. And that all comes from, I think, the fact that they're all so perfectly cast. I think that none of these roles are really stretching what these these actors can do as actors. I think they're kind of fastballs right down the middle for, for most of them. I mean, like you said, Woody Harrelson uh, is is le- definitely leaning very hard into that um, cowboy uh, aesthetic that he even even in his you know more nuanced performances he still he still has that uh that he still carries that with him yeah um, he's got that in three billboards he has that i mean yeah, yeah to some extent in a different way but even in the hunger games movies he has that i think so yeah and i'm but i mean jesse eisenberg of course you know what you're going to get with jesse eisenberg not necessarily a bad thing though he's playing the you know sort of neurotic nebishy guy um Again, right down the middle, that's exactly what this role is. And Emma Stone, yes, she has a lot of range. We've seen what she can do in all sorts of different contexts, but playing the sort of dry, sarcastic, um, you know, cynical uh, girl is is right down, you know, right up her alley as well. And that's what she's asked to do here. So I think, again, a, a lot of it comes from the fact that maybe um, they're slightly being typecast a little bit. I don't know. But whatever the case, it works. And they the dynamic between all of them plays really well. And I think that um, they even have a little fun maybe with the fact that um, this casting is so right down the middle with the sort of meta stuff that happens with uh, with Luke Wilson and Thomas Middleditch when they show up as basically carbon copies of the, uh, the Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg characters. And I think that's a really fun stretch of the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, it's kind of playing off of um, the aesthetics that um, that Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg tend to adopt in a lot of movies. Um, and so I enjoyed that sort of satirical element as well. Yeah, and I think that, to your point about Emma Stone, I, I did say that I think her character goes through the most. I don't know if necessarily I think it's the best, it's the best crafted narrative arc we've ever seen. In some ways, it, it has to cover a lot of ground very quickly in some scenes, but um, making making the most of it is kind of what made that performance in particular stand out, out to me because I don't know how much any of these other characters really grow that much other than maybe a little bit of fulfillment in certain aspects of their lives or whatever. I'm mean, thinking particularly about Tallahassee, which is Woody Harrelson's character. But yeah, with Emma, with Emma Stone having to show that, you know, that overcoming that insecurity um, and that cynicism that you're talking about, you know, at least there was something, there was some you know, personal growth for that character. And so that's why it, it did stick out in my mind in that way, just a little bit above everyone else. Yeah, as much of a benefit as the short running time is, I think that it also necessitates that some character changes happen pretty quickly. I think yeah. that Emma Stone's is one of them. And then I think Woody Harrelson's is perhaps an even more extreme example where he he decides, you know, one thing towards the end of the movie and about two minutes later, it's like, no, nope, that's out the window. Uh, we're back to square one. Uh, again, I'm beating around the bush because of spoilers, but um, I think that 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 is one of maybe one of the the downturns of of having a short running time. But at the same time, I wouldn't really want this movie to go into anything deeper existential. Uh, so I think that um, that that's right for the type of movie that this is. Yeah, I mean, it it knew what kind of movie it was going to be and what it wanted to be, and it it didn't color outside the lines. All right, Scott, how about the new cast members? We've uh, shouted out some of them. Um, <coughs> Zoe Deutsch <coughs> perhaps gets the most screen time. Also, of course, Rosario Dawson, Thomas Middleditch, Luke Wilson, Avon Jogia, who plays the hippie boyfriend uh, of Abigail Breslin's character. Um, anyone of these cast members stick out to you or anyone else that I may be missing? Yeah, I mean, you talk about people who are typecast in, into roles when we're talking about the the single... <laughs> at least the central three characters, right? Well, I don't think you could go much further from a typecast role than Zoe Deutsch yeah. as this as this dumb blonde named Madison, uh, of course, from Madison, Wisconsin, and, in this movie. And I think that it was jarring to see her to the point where, like, we joked about this after we talked about it. I had not initially realized that it was Zoe Deutsch in this role. Even after I watched the first trailer, I just, just didn't register for me that this was Zoe Deutsch because you think about the other roles that she's been in in the last year or so. You think of 
even the politician with her most recent thing on Netflix or her, the, t- the miniseries slash TV show. But then, you know, last year set it up and, you know, going a little bit further back with everybody wants some, it's just very different. Not that, not in terms of age or exactly the type of, yeah, I guess that where she's at in her life, but this character of a dumb blonde is just not the kind of character that Zoe Dutch has played before. And so in that sense, you get that juxtaposition of people who feel like they're perfectly typecast in their role and that they just get to lean in hard. And then you have this person who's still doing a great job with the role that they're doing. Yeah. But you don't get the sense at all that that's typecast. And so that was, that just made for an interesting juxtaposition. And I think that that's true for all of these new characters, right? I don't feel that Luke Wilson and Thomas Middleditch or Rosario Dawson uh, perfectly fit their roles in terms of the typecasting in the ways that we're talking about with those returning characters. And instead, they're asked to do something a little bit different, to add a little bit of different flavor to the movie. And again, I just think that it, it all works for me. I mean, I talked about Thomas Middleditch being absolutely hilarious in this kind of carbon copy, uh, to use your words there, the carbon copy of Columbus, which is, you know, is intended to be. And then Luke Wilson, you know, doing his best Woody Harrelson impression, I guess, as Taz Tallahassee, which is hilarious. And then, you know, even though the the I guess the central finale of the movie with Rosario Dawson's character doesn't I mean, that didn't have the same effect that I think it might have had on other people. I, I we can talk about that more in in a few minutes, but uh, I still appreciated that character and I got a good a good laugh, a good few laughs even out of uh, her dynamic with with Woody Harrelson's uh, Tallahassee. So I, I liked all the newcomers as well. Yeah, I like the difference in reaction that happens when these two characters show up, whereas like Woody Harrelson and Luke Wilson are kind of like competing with each other to be sort of the alpha male. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Thomas Middleditch are just like think each other are like the coolest person ever. Um, And I think that that's that's a funny uh, dynamic there for their characters. But, yeah, I think that everyone plays uh, their part pretty well. Zoe Deutsch, I do think that maybe her character was really starting to get there at the end of maybe being a little bit too annoying. Um, I think that a little bit of this like dumb blonde. And when we say dumb blonde, I mean like capital D U M B dumb. Like caricature dumb blonde. Yes. It, it, a little of it goes a long way. And so I think that they did the right thing maybe by kind of taking this character out of the picture a little bit for a bit of the middle of the movie, bring her back, which is fine. Um, but a few more minutes might, might've been a bit much, but um, I mean, I mean, Even I'm still very predictable. I think every yeah. every narrative beat in this movie is very predictable, um, but still, they made a good decision to take her out of the movie. Yeah, I, I'm still a huge fan of hers, and yeah, like you said, this just shows the the pure range that she has. Uh, as if we aren't weren't already aware from the diverse <laughs> diverse array of projects that you mentioned there, um, she's got a lot of talent, and uh, this is just another example. And I know we're going to see her in a ton more stuff going forward. Rosario Dawson, I agree. I think it's fun too, um, and I like the role that her character plays as someone else that Woody Harrelson connects to. You know, it, it's not it's not a theme that's like super developed in the movie, but uh, there is some talk early on about how um, you know he he doesn't believe that he really. Uh, is going to find some, uh, you know, another, another, another woman for him to love. Um, and perhaps that is some of the reason why he's sort of suffocating little rock a little bit, which is what um, leads to them running away originally part, part of what leads to them running away originally. Um, and so him, him finding uh, out that that is in fact not true and that uh, he can have a connection with this woman who loves Elvis just as much as he does. Um I think was was a fun uh, way to to close that theme out for the movie. So I I appreciated her performance and the role that her character plays as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Scott. Uh, next question. Of course, this movie is a comedy, and the most important question when talking about a comedy is: Is it funny? So is Zombieland Double Tap funny? I think I know your answer, but. Yeah, no, I think that it is funny. I I, I mentioned, and I, th- I think I'll talk, I'll expand on that a little bit more here, and would love to hear your response to this and what you thought. Was that it, it took me? I think it took about five or ten minutes, maybe even a little bit longer, for me to really start vibing with the movie. And and part of that, of course, is the humor and getting to know the characters in that way. And I think that because I didn't have that background from the first movie, not that this movie requires you. I don't think this movie at all requires you. Uh, to have seen the first because I enjoyed it and I didn't see the first movie. But I think it took me a little bit longer maybe to to get with the particular feeling or vibe of this movie. And part of that, of course, is the comedy uh, in the in the start of the movie. And that's why I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether you felt the same way. But I think it was a little bit slow to start. But definitely by, especially by the end of the first act, 
uh, I thought it was hilarious. And then when they started doing these like very specific bits uh, to go back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, that's when I really started thought it really was being successful with what it was doing. And a few of them in particular, like I, I was howling with laughter uh, at, at some of them. And so by the end of the movie, I definitely felt like it was it was a funny film for sure. Yeah, I guess I do slightly agree about the beginning because I think and I think maybe this comes with my familiarity with the zombie land and with the characters as you're as you're saying but i i actually thought some of my favorite gags were in the first 20 minutes or so um when they're there in the in the white house and i'll save one for my favorite moment in the movie that was probably the hardest i laughed but um i i think to have a lot of fun with um the white house setting and you know what what would the white house be like in this post-apocalyptic um universe and in general i think they do a good job with that at all the locations like graceland and all of this um they're they're really sort of positing you know what would this what would this location be like uh what would it be like to to be alive and be around when this post-apocalyptic wasteland is out there um and so i appreciated that and i yeah i think some of my some of my best laughs were for sure some of the callbacks to the original movie um of course the zombie kill of the week becomes zombie kill of the year uh, and makes makes a pretty good comeback uh, on a couple of occasions just to uh, i guess it's a little bit of a spoiler but um bill murray of course is back um his his inclusion in the first movie definitely a highlight of the first movie and um he's he's referred to at one point in the movie and then actually does show up in that post credit scene and that that stuff is just hilarious but yeah some of the new stuff that they add in as well is really funny too in particular you know that what we've already talked about with the the Thomas Middleditch and Luke Wilson characters, I think, is is a bit that stands out to me as being really successful. Um, so yeah, I I did laugh throughout the movie. Um, I'm not like someone who howls with laughter at a lot of comedies, so I'm not sure that the the movie really um, got me there. But I think I had a solid eight to nine laughs, which for me um, is is well above average for. Uh, you know your your average comedy on screen. Hey, what, what's the what's the rule slash rule the rule of thumb there? If you laugh five or six times, the movie's funny. Yeah, I can't remember what it is. Mark Kermode from BBC always talks about it. I think it's the four. I think it's four or five. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, either way, it well surpassed that uh, for me. So I would definitely consider it a success in the comedy yeah. department. Yeah, me too. Like I said, I think after those initial, you know, the, the initial couple scenes there. I think I, I warmed up to the not not even warmed up right, but I just understood better what what the what the sense of humor of the film was, and that and it worked for me, and it worked for me, and I and I laughed a lot through the rest of the film. Yeah. All right, Scott. I alluded to this question earlier, but and maybe this is more of a question for someone who's seen the first movie. But <laughs> um, do you think this movie is really necessary? Because I think I did. This was a sentiment I saw from some critics, particularly when the trailers were coming out for this movie. They were like. Did anyone really ask for a Zombieland sequel? I mean, the first movie was fun, but you know, did this movie really need a sequel? Do you have any thoughts on that? Again, not coming from the background of having seen the first movie. Yeah, I mean, was the movie necessary? I mean, pro probably not, right? But at the yeah. same time, um, like I, ha I had a good time watching it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but like, yeah, I had a good time watching the film. Uh, would I like? Would I have have I gone and seen something else in its place if we weren't covering on this podcast? Yeah, like I probably wouldn't have gone and watched this movie except for the podcast. But I still enjoyed it. Still had a good time. You know, maybe at the end of the year I'll look back and say, you know, I missed this movie when Zombieland was out, and I wish I'd seen that. But uh, no, I, I was the movie necessary? Probably not. But are half the movies that we see in theaters necessary? Probably not. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't I wouldn't say that this movie was was vital or necessary either, despite being the fan of the first one that I am. But I think that uh, I'm still I again, I'm glad that this movie exists because of what it represents for, uh, you know, again, these Oscar winning actors who are out here doing uh, what I would imagine is a somewhat low budget um, sequel to this uh, comedy from 10 years ago. Again, like that, you know, people probably it didn't stick in a lot of people's memories, um, even though it was a lot of fun. And and like you said, this movie probably isn't going to stick in their memories either. But I appreciate uh, that it exists. And I think it is it is far superior to something like The Lion King, right, which we talked about. Does this movie need to exist? Um, because it's still doing something new. It's adding new yeah. characters. It's a new story. Um, 
it's new jokes and everything. So I think yeah. it, there's definitely, you could definitely differentiate it from, from movies like that, which aren't attempting to do anything new. Maybe this isn't moving the characters that far forward, um, but it's nice to spend time in this world again. Yeah, this movie's mission is to entertain, not leave you with some deep, thoughtful message. And and not every movie has to have a deep, thoughtful message, and that's totally fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have too much more to add other than the fact the budget for this film was 40 to $50 million. Yeah, exactly. So, um, again, kind of a labor of love, which is cool to see. I'm sure the actors took a bit of a pay cut, um, but that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, and I hope that other, you know, big screen, big name actors will... Uh, follow suit and do the projects that they want to do rather than uh, following uh, wherever the money leads. Was Abigail uh, Breslin really taking a pay cut in this movie though? I'm not sure. Like what no, that, could that, she that even lead true. a movie at this point? I, and I believe that was one of the references. That was one of the replies went to someone who was talking about who asked for zombie land too. I think someone said Abigail Breslin's agent, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is probably on point, but um, Hey, no matter what, she's still an Oscar nominated actress. You can't take that away from her. What was she nominated um, for? Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, but okay, Scott. Final topic here before we move into the wrap up. Um, the action. We we talked a little bit about it up front, um, and there is some good action um, in this movie. You know, obviously a lot of a lot of zombie kills going on. Uh, some some maybe somewhat gratuitous, but uh, the action I think yeah. is pretty fun and cartoonish uh, in a lot of moments. And you know, we we hinted around one action scene that stood out for you for us. So I'll let you go ahead and uh, and reveal what that one was. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I I guess to preface what this this scene that we're talking about, like I I did enjoy some of the you know the zombie battle scenes. Of course, the the movie opens with one which uh, was enjoyable enough. I think that was like fine. I was like, well, if the whole movie's like this, then I'm not going to enjoy it very much. But the fact that that was on like this the uh, you know excessive use of slow mo uh, only happened that once and then they they moved on to a different bit and you know this the second big fight scene kind of with the RV is a very different feel of a fight scene and then this particular scene coming up after this is uh it, it, and after this I mean the one that we're actually here talking about now and that we're thinking about here with uh, kind of between. Uh, Luke Wilson's character, Thomas Middleton's character, and then Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson after they fight off some zombies, particularly the former two there. So the uh, I believe it's Flagstaff and Albuquerque, which is Thomas Middleditch and Luke Wilson, uh, mm -hmm. respectively. They go they they arrive at kind of this Graceland hotel where uh, all the characters are at, including Rosario Dawson's Nevada, and they fight off a few zombies. But in the midst of that action, I guess they are bitten by zombies and they start to change kind of before the very eyes of you know everyone there nevada uh columbus tallahassee and it, it results in this scene where and, and it is a really well sh well shot one yeah. shot of of this uh, very highly choreographed um scene where you have essentially these carbon copies of these people fighting fighting their each other very very us-esque i'd say uh maybe doppelganger is not quite the, the right fit there at the tether is not the right notion but i think we're seeing a lot of this people fighting the carbon copies of themselves this year which is an interesting True. take because obviously obviously none of these movies knew that each other were coming out and that's what they were doing because movies are in production for years before they actually happen um and so i just thought that was super interesting and you know if for no other reason than the cinematography and the choreography which uh of course at, we, we've been talking more and more i i think this year less so about the cinematography but the choreography with john wick and and, and whatnot I think it was well done. I think it was really well done. I really enjoyed the cinematography of that scene in particular. And about halfway through the fight scene, when I realized what they're doing, I'm like, oh, they're they're doing this one shot. This is really awesome. I loved it. And that you know, again, and going back to the choreography and the action component of it, I thought it it was also really well done there, really enjoyable. And if the movie had ended like five minutes after that scene, I probably would have been fine. Yeah, no, I that's this is totally the scene that I was talking about as well. I think for the reasons that you said, uh, it definitely stands out among the crowd. Um, I think that the tracking shot technique is is really cool and stylish, and it's a way to you know we talk about the the movie having a low budget. It's a way to like bring some style and flair to your movie without having to use a lot of uh, you know big budget effects or anything like that. Using the camera in a strategic way like that, I think is is very clever. Even even if it does, even if it's uh, all for show, I think it was. You know, a lot of this movie is all for show, and so it was it was good fun uh, that they did that. I also, in general, in the action scenes, just love the way that 
and this is carries over from the first movie as well, that they integrate like the rules that Jesse Eisenberg, of course, is known for coming up with. Columbus is co coming up with. They integrate the rules, and, like the actual text of the rules on screen, like people are running into numbers and stuff like that. I think that's a really funny, like breaking the fourth wall moment. Um, and especially, of course, when you you introduce Thomas Middleditch's character, who has guidelines, not rules. But um, I, thought course, was, I thought it was commandments. Commandments. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. What is the guidelines versus rules? I think that's a that's a Pirates of the Caribbean thing. But anyway, uh, commandments. Yes, and they're written in really like fancy cursive and stuff on screen. That was a really funny uh, dynamic. Uh, but yeah, Scott, if there's nothing else to add there, um, then I think we can move into the wrap up phase. Let's do it. All right, Scott, what was your favorite scene or moment or maybe favorite joke? Um, anything like that from Zombieland Double Tap? Yeah, you know, it's something that we haven't talked about that you briefly alluded to earlier, but I avoided talking about it because it, it was the moment that I was howling with laughter. So if you're talking about the favorite joke in the film, uh, so the whole notion, and I I didn't get this because I haven't seen the first movie. I didn't realize it was a reference, but the whole notion of the zombie kill of the year, mm -hmm. uh, I thought was really funny. Not, not the first, the first one. I laughed at, but didn't, I wouldn't say that I held, but the second one with the leaning tower of Pisa, like absolutely yeah, killed great. me. I was howling with laughter. I saw this movie with someone else. And I think that they were like mildly concerned about whether I was okay <laughs> during the scene. Uh, but I had, I just could not stop laughing. I just thought it was so funny. And so the whole notion and even like the little logo of like, Oh, zombie kill of the week or whatever was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, if I had to pick a scene from for style, it, it would be the action scene that we were just talking about. But if we're talking about a joke, uh, I I thought it was just absolutely hilarious that particular that particular gag with zombie zombie kill of the week in Italy and just the way it was narrated. Uh, not always a fan of the voiceover narration in films. I think it mostly works in this one, and it works perfectly, mwah, perfectly uh, in, in this particular scene. Yeah, you should definitely go back and watch the first one because there's some good zombie kills of the week in there too. And I think that the first movie is even shorter than this one. So uh, it wouldn't take up too much of your time. So I think it'd be worth it. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I might watch an episode of Marvelous Miss Maisel later. So it'd probably only be a little bit longer than that. And that's probably a better use of your time, to be honest, because um, it's elite. Um, but Scott, I alluded earlier that one of my favorite jokes, or my favorite joke in the movie probably comes in the first section section of the movie segment of the movie when they're in the white house. And uh, there's like a montage cut together of them doing a bunch of crazy stuff in the white house that of course you couldn't normally do and sort of taking advantage of the fact that they're all alone in the white house in this, um, you know, uh, and un unsupervised in this post-apocalyptic wasteland and uh, Tallahassee, Woody Harrelson's character takes it upon himself to, pardon uh wesley's to write a presidential pardon for wesley snipes which is even funnier when you think about uh that woody harrelson and wesley snipes of course have acted together in a couple of movies i think white men can't jump being one of them um i thought that that was just a hilarious a hilarious uh reference to that and um just a funny example of here's what you can do when you're in the white house in a post-apocalyptic wasteland we're gonna we're gonna let wesley off the hook for for avoiding those taxes um so that that was probably my hardest laugh but yeah there there were a lot throughout the movie um and it was a fun time it was all right let's put a score on it scott what'd you give zombie land double tap 7.2 Yep, just a little bit higher for me, 7.5. Not going to set the world on fire with this. But again, if you go to see this movie, you probably know what you're going to get. And I imagine that you're going to be satisfied with what you get just as we were. So Yeah, and the only thing I wasn't satisfied with is that even in spite of its 90-whatever, five-minute, what I don't remember what it was, uh, <laughs> runtime, the last five, like the last whole finale, I was I was pretty much done with the movie by then. It could have yeah. ended. It could have ended about ten or fifteen minutes before. I get what it was going for in terms of its finale. It didn't really work that well for me, and that's probably the biggest hit that I have against the movie. And I will say, Scott, you're not wrong. The first zombie had eighty eight minutes long. If it had been fifteen minutes shorter, it would have been like a long TV episode, basically. And it would have been great. I wouldn't yeah. complain at all. You're right. Um, yeah, so that should just about do it, I think, for our review of Zombieland Double Tap, which I think time-wise is about as short as the movie was, um, at least by our standards. Um, yep. After the break, we will be right back with a couple of uh, news items. And, but more importantly, we'll be back talking about that brand new Star Wars Episode Nine: Rise of Skywalker trailer. Uh, so stick around. We'll be right back with that.
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before we get to the big Star Wars trailer, a couple of other news items, which I will turn over to you, our resident Anderson Cooper, to run through. Thank you, Scott. No, I'm kidding. I won't do that. <laughs> no, yeah, that, I, yeah, I guess we just, with this new news format and just the fact that we're both so busy, I did not write up a news section for you to be able to read this week. So we're, we're winging it, right? And I think one of the, the things that caught my eye this week, I, of course, the trailer was pretty much the only thing that caught anyone's eye i think this week but one of the big things that i saw was this whole debate around once upon a time in hollywood with quentin tarantino of course it, it hasn't been released in china and china of course being at this point maybe becoming the biggest box office opportunity uh definitely outside the u.s for sure but even competing directly with the u.s in terms of some of these movies and their and their appeal in foreign audiences and actually maybe even grossing more money in china than in the u.s and Basically, I think it had to do with uh, is it the portrayal of Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Yeah, the portrayal of Bruce Lee in the movie, particular, I, I think particularly around um, his, you know Brad Pitt's character beating up the, of course, the fictional uh, character of Bruce Lee played by Mike Moe, and that not having that, not not cutting that out of the film. I think uh, China is essentially refusing to release the the movie in in theaters, and that I'm sure is costing. Sony, I believe it is, uh, a lot of money because I think this movie would have done gangbusters, like a a Hollywood period piece uh, set, you know, done by Quentin Tarantino. I mean, that movie, I think, sells itself in China, which is kind of a, a growing film audience there. Of course, maybe, you know, it's not necessarily going to do Avengers Endgame numbers, of course, but, you know, I don't know exactly how much Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has made. It's like in the 200 or 300 million. Like it's absolutely crushed. Yeah, exactly. But I think that yeah. that, I mean, China could easily add a 50, 60 million dollars. And that's pure profit that Sony would be putting into, their, putting into their pocket at that point because this movie's definitely made its money back in terms of its budget and its marketing. And in some ways, I think even though it's crushed at 200, 300 million, it's probably not made that much money back just because of the amount of marketing. And I'm sure a lot of the back end deals that these stars have on the film. And so the fact that it's Sony is losing 50 to 60 million just because Quentin Tarantino doesn't want to cut a two minute, three minute scene out of his film. Understandably. So it's absolutely his creative directorial, right? And I'm sure that's in all of his contracts. The way quit the way that Quentin Tarantino does, he has, I'm sure he has final editing authority. That's not always the case with directors, of course, but you know, that's, that's well within his right to do it. And I think Sony's eating a 50 to $60 million scene uh, because of it, which, which sucks for them, obviously, but that's the way the cookie crumbles, Scott. And, you know, going kind of moving on from that, we did learn this week, we, a movie that we've talked probably more than I'd like to on this podcast already, but uh, one that we'll be following more closely going forward and with a little bit more information about the last duel. We know that I mean, we may have thought that Ben Affleck was going to star opposite Matt Damon uh, in this film, but it looks like that might not be the case. He may just be directing if he's acting, and maybe it'll be a minor role. But as Adam Driver has been cast opposite Matt Damon in the last duel, again, we don't know which character is going to be which here. Uh, we don't have to get into the topic, of course, <laughs> as well. But Adam Driver, uh, a much more interesting casting, in my opinion, uh, to go up against Matt Damon in this film, whichever side of the coin uh, these characters land on, than Ben Affleck. I think that Ben Affleck uh, may be better off stepping out of that role just based on other, other stuff that uh, is associated with his with his Affleck name maybe uh, in, in the past, but that's that is that is that I suppose Scott one that I know that doesn't really resonate too much with you. That's the announcement that Hocus Pocus two will be moving forward on Disney Plus. It will be a Disney Plus movie. I like Hocus Pocus the original one. It's a classic. Uh, I don't I can't say that I revisit it every year, but I do enjoy it. Um, I know this doesn't register for you at all. And the interesting part now I think is whether they, whether they can get these kind of three central stars to return for the second one. Uh, the biggest of which is Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, she wasn't interested in doing sex in the city three uh, with HBO and NBC universal over there. I think that's NBC universal. Uh, maybe it's Warner brothers. I'm forgetting. But what right else now. has she got going on right now? Let's be real. I, I don't know, but I, I imagine they won't, they won't have a hard time getting the other two back because I can't even remember their names right now. Uh, but that is that. I'm not sure, honestly, there's much more going on this week, Scott. So why don't we just get to that trailer? Let's do it. And by the way, one of the others from Hocus Pocus is Bette Midler, who is kind of a big star. So Oh, you're right. Uh, you're right. You're yeah. right. But anyway. I don't think she has anything uh, going on, though. They should be able to get her back. More importantly than Bette Midler, we got a Star Wars trailer this week. Um, we 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 figured out or we we heard that this trailer was going to be coming out, I guess, late in the previous week, uh, that it would be premiering on Monday Night Football. Um, and it did indeed do that. Um, Scott, 
as always with the Star Wars trailer, a lot to unpack here. Um, I think for me, first impressions are that this was just a fantastic trailer. Again, much like the first one. Um, I mean, those Di- those Disney people, whoever they have cutting their trailers. Yeah. I, I, had chills, I had chills within like 30 seconds of watching this. It was like emotionally wrecking me. So I cannot imagine what the the movie is going to do. But, you know, it, it's weird because I heard some people complaining. They were like, well, I expected something bigger from this trailer. And I think that's kind of dumb when you, first of all, there are big things that happen in this trailer. Um, and we'll talk, we'll maybe talk about a couple of those, but considering that we had dark Ray in the first trailer, like I'm not sure how much further you want them to go in a trailer without giving stuff away. Like it, it almost makes me think these people were like looking for like, I don't know, a Ray, Ray and Kylo to be in like a full on makeout session or something like that's what or they, they wanted. wanted to see Palpatine. Yeah, that is true. And we see his silhouette. We hear his voice, um, but we don't actually see Palpatine, which is, I think, is perfectly fine. I think that this trailer absolutely got the job done for me of showing us some images that are clearly out of context, um, but that are going to get us uh, excited about what's to come. Uh, Of course, some of those being, Scott, that um, C-3PO one one of which the emotional moment in the trailer was C-3PO um, is maybe going to die. I don't know. I feel like the fact that they included this in the trailer means that it's not going to happen and that they just want you to make want to make you think it's going to happen. Um, kind of like Dark Ray probably isn't going to be at the actual Dark Ray. It's probably going to be some sort of clone thing like we've already talked about. Um, but C-3PO has this moment where he says to the whole gang, um, I just wanted to take one last look at my friends. Um, what? Any thoughts on this particular moment, Scott? Yeah, I think it is one of the more interesting parts of the trailer. I know, I, I feel like in one of the trailers, I don't know if it was the teaser or the first full trailer that we got, C-3PO was shown in like, bat, the, like battle mode with red eyes. I wonder if this scene is just where he's about to transition into battle mode there. And yeah. that's one, I mean, that might be one explanation for this because Man, rip my heart out as C-3PO dies. He's not my favorite droid. Um, I won't spoil that for those people who are watching the Star Wars miniseries that we're putting out right now because I will talk about my favorite droid at some point on that series. Uh, it hasn't happened yet in terms of our recording timeline or in, in the in the, in the the release timeline either. Um, but I it, yeah, C-3PO, one of like the two characters, the other one also being another droid, R2-D2, that's been in every Star Wars Skywalker mm-hmm. saga movie. And so you know, if either one of those characters bites the dust, in uh, in in uh, rise uh, sorry rise of skywalker i that will wreck me absolutely 100% 100% that will wreck me um and so i hope that i don't i hope and i also don't i don't think that that will happen but we'll see if it does we'll see if it does i think and you know i know you asked me about this question but just going back to something that you were talking about and alluding to earlier i mean also like again like what to your point what more do people want from this trailer like do they want a big spoiler like jj abrams is not going to put a big because yeah, then they'd get mad about a spoiler i mean well, like well sure that but also like jj abrams this is but yeah it, it, it totally and and you know that's we have thankfully we have a podcast where we're probably going to talk about star wars fandom at some point um but i think the the frustrating thing for me is that like it's JJ Abrams guys. Like he's not going to put, it's the last movie in a 40 year saga, you know, more than 40 year saga. And like, you're not going to, you're not going to put the, a huge spoiler in the final trailer, especially the kind of director that JJ Abrams is. Uh, and I don't think that Disney would want that either, to be honest. So I, I don't know what people are looking for here. I think a good trailer gives the tone, the atmosphere and the mood of a movie without really revealing, revealing too many spoilers. In fact, I mean, we talked about Zombieland on this episode. I think that trailer tells you too much about what that movie's going to be. Uh, it doesn't, it, it sets the tone absolutely, but you know that Zoe Deutsch's character isn't going to die at the scene that, you know, she's up to be killed because there's a scene that's not, not yet happened in the movie that's in the trailer. Like it's just things like that. You're just not going to see that. I don't think from the Skywalker saga. Yeah, no, it's interesting too, I, I do want to bring up the fact that you said you, you're talking about how this is the last movie in the saga. And of course, that's something that um, is on screen during the trailers as the final chapter in the saga. Um, but I, I'm still a little unsure about what exactly that means. Right. Like, I, I know, it, of course, it's I guess it is the final episode in the Skywalker saga. But we know that there are going to be mov- more movies coming forward. Uh, we don't really know exactly what those movies are going to be about. 
but I still wonder, you know, will we see some of these characters again? Could we see, you know, Ray, Finn, Poe, any of these characters um, going forward? I, I don't know. I feel like the them saying it's the end of the saga is a little bit misleading when we know that there are um, that there are more movies to come because I feel like they could have kind of done the same thing and when Revenge of the Sith came out. And of course, we have gotten three more movies now. That's true. I mean, George Lucas always wanted to make nine movies, though. So I don't. I mean, you're you're totally right about what you're saying about Revenge of the Sith, but I don't think it was George Lucas's intention to not make the last three movies that he wanted to make. Right? It was just a matter of getting funding and getting backing to do those things and realizing his vision, which was very different than what Disney realized with Episode Seven, Eight, and Nine. We know that from the interviews with um, Bob Iger uh, when his book came out, the memoir that I guess was ghostwritten. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, we, but like there were conversations in there that talked about Bob Iger talking about how George Lucas was very upset with the direction that Disney went with episode seven and then, you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, uh, is it possible we'll see these characters again, maybe get a Disney plus series. I mean, we know we're getting uh, the Obi-Wan Disney plus series. We know we're getting the Cassian Andor Disney plus series. Maybe we'll get another character from the universe, of course, from the Skywalker saga universe, at least the subset of the universe there. Absolutely. But I, I think, and we'll see, time will, time will tell, of course, but I do think that in going forward, the movies that we're going to be seeing, whether it's D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, whether it's Ryan Johnson, whoever it might be, I think we're going to see those in very different time sets. And that doesn't mean the story won't ultimately tie in and reference the Skywalker saga, but I think that the characters that you're finding here, especially the central characters you're finding here, uh, are not going to feature in those movies to come. And so when you have characters like, you know, whether it's Ray, whether it's Kylo, you know, of course... You know, Han is of course having already having already passed in, in his untime and in, in this and Luke, et cetera, et cetera. These characters are, you know, they're they are going, they are passing, they're they're moving off screen. But will there be references to them in the future? Probably, but will the stories be about these characters? I don't think so. And I think that whether that's authentic or true to the message of the final chapter. Uh, you can. That's probably a separate debate to have, but I think there will be a change moving forward. And like the, at least I, I would hope so. I could be wrong. Kevin Feige is also producing a movie in the direct, in the creative vision of these films, and the characters, and the times, and the periods, and the themes, and the planets, and everything that this exploring. Because this universe should be huge, right? Um, and it hasn't always been huge in the Skywalker saga. So, yeah, no, I definitely agree with where you're coming from. Um, yeah, like I, I think that that's you're making fair points. I, I guess it just does disappoint me a little bit because it, it still feels like we're just getting to know these characters, right? Finn, Poe, Ray, all of them. Like when you, when you compare the fact that we, you know, spent 40 years or whatever, I mean, obviously we personally didn't, but like people have spent 40 years with the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker and all of that. Um, you know, we were just introduced to these characters three years ago. Um, and now you know, we're, we're being told this is the last we're going to see of them. I would be disappointed if that is the case. And, you know, I understand why maybe that is the case. Um, and maybe going forward, maybe it is best for the Star Wars saga if they distance themselves a little bit from the same story that they've been telling for nine movies now. Um, but at the same time, it, just from a from a sentimental standpoint, I would be a little bit disappointed in that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And for what it's worth, I think that the good news is that they're able to continue to create these new types of characters, right? And get you invested in them in a way that you want to spend more than three movies with them. Right. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I think that one thing that I think the star Wars universe will endure with and be able to continue to do is create those types of characters to get you attached to. And if anything, you know, you should feel very reassured that someone like Kevin Feige is producing a star Wars movie because he almost certainly will create a character that you're invested in, you know, whether it takes 20 movies to get you invested in them. I don't know. That's maybe it's another story, but um, no, I think that, I think that it's in good hands, but I, I do hear where you're coming from there. I wonder if, you know, there is a potential right for a Disney plus like sort of uh, a TV show or whatever it might be uh, to, to work with there. But I mean, who knows what they're going to end up doing right with this movie, Avengers Endgame numbers, I don't think. But let's just say that it, you know, it overperforms and now there's like Force Awakens or something like that, which would be a huge accomplishment for this film. I mean, of course, it's pre-sales are tracking or like broke in games, uh, like first day pre-sale record. It, it didn't break in games like first week pre-sale, I think, but it, the first day it did. And I mean, that's huge, right? That's huge. Um, the fact that after the disaster that Solo was in terms of the relative box office of Star Wars movies to a year and a half later, I mean, literally to the point of causing them to shutter projects that maybe, yes, they were revived on Disney Plus, but getting all the future Star Wars story movies canceled at the time, whatever ones that were in pre-production, um, 
to then now be setting pre-sale records on its first day. Uh, I'm sure that everyone at Disney and Lucasfilms are breathing a sigh of relief over there. And because of that, and this is to your point, you know, they say it's the last chapter in the saga, but sometimes there's just something about these characters. You bring them back, you make yeah. money. Um, and if Star Wars ever were to dip, no one's ever really gone. Of, no one's ever really gone. And if Star Wars were to ever, in terms of in terms of its box office numbers or its popularity, ever were to dip, I don't think that anyone at Disney would hesitate for a second to thirty years from now bring back a character like Ray, like Poe, like Finn. I mean, maybe not Poe or Finn. I think that I may. I don't know the audience sentiment to that. Maybe that's a separate discussion. But bring back someone like Ray. I think that they would not hesitate to do that. Yeah, and Scott, something else I want to talk about, turning back to the trailer a little bit, I guess. Um, there's an interesting image that we get at one point. Of course, we see that uh, Ray and Ren are, of course, fighting in what appears to be the throne room from Return of the Jedi. Of course, probably one of the many references to Return of the Jedi that will be going on in this movie, given uh, the fact that J.J. Abrams, you know, what we saw with Force Awakens is that we saw a lot of callbacks to A New Hope and that was the beginning of the trilogy, and this is the end of the trilogy. So I suspect we'll see more callbacks to Return of the Jedi. But we see them fighting in what appears to be this th the throne room from Return of the Jedi. And at one point, their lightsabers collide with what looks to be, and what a lot of people are speculating, is Darth Vader's mask. And it explodes into like a thousand pieces. Uh, any thoughts on this image whatsoever? I was a little taken aback. I think I must have missed this, or at least the reference that it was Darth Vader's helmet. Um, cause I don't remember this. Uh, that's interesting though. I, what, what are your thoughts on it? Cause I literally don't have any cause I didn't, it didn't register with me. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I, I, I really have wrestled with what it means and I, I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Um, does it mean that Kylo Ren perhaps is, is it a metaphor that he's perhaps not going to follow in, um, the footsteps of, uh, the Sith Lord, you know, before him of Darth Vader and uh, have this sort of turn back to heroism in the end? Is he going to um, give in to Palpatine, who apparently gave the Emperor, who is apparently back in the picture? Is he going to give in in the way that Darth Vader didn't? I don't know exactly what this means, um, but it's interesting, right? Especially when you consider that Kylo Ren is probably the most vulnerable villain that we've seen in the Star Wars universe. Um, so, uh, of all the characters who you would expect maybe to follow in Invader's footsteps, you'd kind of think that maybe he would be, uh, you know, one. Uh, but I don't know exactly what this spells out, but um, I, I did find it somewhat interesting. You know, maybe maybe on the flip side, maybe looking at that, maybe maybe it's uh, it's Ray sort of rejecting the Skywalker um, legacy and um, choosing not to follow in the footsteps of the Skywalker. I don't know. There's there's a lot to unpack with this image, but it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, now I'm going to have to go rewatch it again and think and look, yeah. and look at this image. It, it is a it. quick shot. It's like one or two seconds. But Okay, interesting, interesting, yeah. I mean, I just thought one of the things that this is abstracting a little bit from your question here and just talking about my general impressions of the trailer, really. But one of the things that I just really appreciated is that I think each trilogy, right, is known for certain things. I think that the the prequel trilogy, in terms of its positives, is really is known so well for having very epic action sequences. I think very well shot, beautiful action sequences. I think that the you know the original trilogy, I think, is known for its characters, right? The fact that you have someone like Han Solo, Leia Organa, you know, of course, Luke Skywalker. I think these are all just such you know the best characters that you come up with in the series. Maybe maybe you can argue Obi Wan. Um, stretches he, he stretches across trilogies, but he's you know he's more rooted probably in in that prequel trilogy. Nevertheless, I think that the original trilogy being known for that, and then I think one of the things and one of the facets of the sequel trilogy that's still trying to define itself is what exactly is it like? What is it good at? Right? What is it best at? Um, you know, the first movie, of course, it had beautiful visuals, great uh, universe world building, and I think that 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 might be what this you know sequel trilogy is known for. I mean, Jakku on ostensibly very similar planet to Tatooine. Then you have uh, Maz Kanata's um, palace on uh, the planet. I, I mean, I'm drawing a blank right now uh, on the name of the planet, uh, but you know, that's in, that's in the force awakens. And then you have something like crate, you have Takadana as much as I think people are a little bit lukewarm on Takadana uh, as a sequence in, in the last Jedi. I think that 
I think that Crate is probably maybe the coolest planet in the Star Wars universe and definitely visually. And I think that the visual world building that you're seeing happen in the sequel trilogy, I think, is one of the standout pieces of it. And I think that's really true of what's happening in this trailer. One of the things that sticks out to me the most is, of course, the the swell of emotion and epic feel of what's happening. But the visuals, the the like the multiple scenes that you have in the trailer shooting of planets that you you have no idea what these planets are. You have no idea what's even going on with all these ships in the background of the atmosphere. Uh, and then, of course, the you know, kind of the the smaller fighters skimming across the ship. You have them riding a horse that looks like on a freaking spaceship. I don't even know what's going on in one of those scenes. And I think that I, I wonder what this final movie is going to kind of cement the sequel trilogy's legacy to be. And, of course, it's a discussion that we can have when we talk about this in December. But I think that I got that feel from from the trailer and maybe that's just maybe that's just a byproduct of the kind of trailer that disney is making here and that lucasfilm is making here but i wonder if that's something that resonates with you at all yeah no i think it is hard to know at this point what the takeaways are going to be i think we may not even really know until several years down the line that that's usually how these things go but absolutely um i think part of the problem at this point is that we the two movies which we have gotten were so in opposite to each other that while I, I am a huge fan of both movies, I think um, it, it's hard to find a lot of consistencies between them other than maybe, as you point out, the visuals being really strong in both. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I didn't even mention Octu from, from that. I just think that the planets themselves and the worlds that you're living in on those things yeah. are, they feel more realized than any of the other movies. Yeah. I think that the visuals are definitely a strong point uh, of the trilogy. I would hesitate to say that they're going to be the takeaway, at least for me personally, because sure. I think that I have felt an emotional connection to Star Wars in this trilogy, even more so than in the other trilogies for me. I think I think a lot of it is about when these movies came out um, in our respective lives. You know, the yeah. fact that we we weren't around when the original trilogy came out. I think that plays into it some for me, um, but I think that. So far, what they've been able to do, what what Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams have been able to do is sort of um, maybe smooth over some of the filmmaking flaws that George Lucas had or that, you know, maybe the directors of the uh, later movies in the trilogy, in the original trilogy had, particularly, I think, Return of the Jedi, um, Richard Marquand, and and create yes maybe not well in the case of the last jedi yes something new but in the case of the force awakens maybe not something wholly new um but something that maybe even feel feels even more fully realized than the original movie did because there's more depth and there's there's better writing there's more depth to the characters there and i know that some of this what i'm saying is probably highly controversial as as anything is like saying star wars is a movie is controversial in the star wars universe um it's a film not a movie yes but is it cinema that is the question right it's definitely not it's definitely not cinema <laughs> definitely sorry. not cinema yeah. um but yeah so i for me i think my takeaways are probably going to be different from the average person or the average star wars fan but i do think for me that right now and i don't suspect that the last movie is going to change this it's going to be something deeper than just the visuals no i i agree and it's hard to, to your point exactly it's really hard to comment on that as until years after the fact right i mean could I mean, it may need to be a decade or more before you can really comment on it. That, that's how much time it's been. I mean, a decade and a half since Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005. And, or is it 2004? I don't even remember. Um, 2003. Or no, 2005. Sorry. I was going to say, I thought 2003 was, was not a movie. Sorry. 2002 was Attack of the Clones, 99. Yes, was, it doesn't matter. That is correct. Um, cool. I'm going to do great in movie release dates. Yeah, there we go. Um, no, but I think that... It, I think that one of the things that, it, to your point, is totally on the table for the sequel trilogy is it creating character and narrative arcs that surpass anything that you saw in the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy, in my opinion, right? That's on the table. They could they could complete those arcs that, we, that we've been exploring, whether it's Kylo, whether it's Ray, whether even even whether it's like Finn and, and and you know people love Rose, I know so much, but like that that character as well. I think there's there is still potential there for them to absolutely hit a home run with a way that they wrap up these very particular narrative arcs in a way that I don't think that you get in either the prequel or the original trilogy. I mean, at least for me, I was very dissatisfied 
uh, with Anakin and the prequel trilogy. As much as I love all three of those characters uh, and was so invested in all of them over the course of the original trilogy, I don't know that I necessarily am in love with those particular character arcs if we're purely talking about the arcs themselves. Um, I don't necessarily think that they are the greatest, and, but I think there is an opportunity for uh, you know, the arc, the, the Ray and Kylo, whether they're, you know, wherever they end up there, I think there is a way in which they can conclude that story in a way that surpasses the arcs that you get in the other trilogies. And that may end up what they're being known for. And I hope that it is. Yeah. I mean, last thing I'll say is that I just, I think what I'm getting at is that I feel in terms of the characters, like I feel more invested in what happens to, I, I guess, particularly Ray and Kylo Ren in this yeah. movie that, uh, then, then I did even, you know, with like Han Solo or Obi Wan or Darth Vader in the originals, and I think yeah. that a lot of that um, has to go to the filmmaking quality involved in these in these movies. Like, yep. especially because we grew up with the prequels, and yeah, maybe we enjoyed them when we were young, but I think over over the years, I've started to see that the experience we got with these movies wasn't what you know you want from a Star Wars movie, perhaps, and and I think that for everything that the prequel trilogy didn't deliver the sequel trilogy so far has delivered yeah. um, in a way that makes me feel personally connected to this trilogy, just as people who grew up with the original trilogy feel connected to that. Yeah. I mean, so that's my, take. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that to just uh, the final period at the end of the sentence, I, and I think that's because these characters are more relatable than anyone we've met in the prequel of the original trilogy. You may be right about that. I guess only time will tell. But uh, Scott, if there's nothing else to add there on the Rise of Skywalker trailer, um, I think that should just about do it for episode 63 of Some Like It. Scott, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at SShelton2013. And you can find me at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It. Scott, if you have and you'd like to support our podcast, don't forget about our Patreon page. Uh, patreon.com slash media plug pods where you can go over there and support us uh, even if you choose not to support us though we hope you will uh, like rate review subscribe do all of the things um, that you do with podcasts uh, on whatever app you choose remember that we are on spotify now um, and remember to check out the star wars countdown series which is coming out every sunday morning uh, 9 a.m i believe is when those episodes have been dropping um, three episodes out so far we'll be getting into the original trilogy coming up in the next few weeks. Um, so if you enjoyed our discussion of Rise of Skywalker, uh, go, go check out the, the trailer, at least. Uh, go check out um, the the uh, Star Wars Countdown podcasts um, where we go even more in-depth with Star Wars. Yeah, and about uh, and, actually about a movie instead of just a trailer. Yes, instead of just a trailer. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode uh, in which we will be talking about the latest entry in the Terminator series, Terminator Dark Fate. Until then, I'm Scott Harvey for Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.